Welcome to the Arts and Sciences Matters podcast, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgia State University. This is your host, Anna Varela. Our goal is to bring you insights from researchers working on a broad range of social, cultural, and scientific challenges. Our guest today is Eyal Aharoni, who conducts research at the intersection of philosophy, psychology, and neuroscience. Today, we're talking about his research into how emotion and decision-making, legal psychology, and neurolaw affect the criminal justice system. Welcome to our podcast, Eyal. Thanks for having me. Let's start with your research into how jurors think about punishment. You found that people's recommendations may change depending on whether they're provided with information about the cost of that punishment. Tell us a little about that study. Sure. So I spent a lot of time thinking about how people make moral judgments, especially in the context of criminal punishment. I was once struck by a headline several years ago that a year of prison is now more expensive than a year at Princeton. Wow. Um, yeah. But People never seem to really care about how much punishment costs. You know, we want the bad guys punished, not based on the cost, but based on our moral values. It's like we want to tell ourselves that our moral principles are not for sale. But, but I wonder if we're thinking about these costs in the wrong way. After all, costs can represent moral values because some of the money spent on locking someone up could have otherwise been spent on prevention, education, rehabilitation, or anything else that we as a society deeply value. So I wanted to know how expensive is our penchant for punishment? And when we punish as much as we do, are we making authentic, informed punishment judgments? Or would we make different judgments if we thought that the costs represent our broader values? So uh, my collaborators, Heather Ofoet, uh, Sarah Brosnan and I, we ran several survey experiments where people would learn about a criminal offender like a burglar or drug dealer and then make a sentencing recommendation. Um, but before submitting the recommendation, some of the participants were told how much it costs to incarcerate the offender, like $31,000 per year. Mm -hmm. And they were given some ideas of uh, how else those funds could have been used if not on prison. Um, so in these experiments, we consistently find that people who are exposed to the cost information recommend prison terms that are about 30% shorter than those who are not exposed. Hmm. People who are not exposed to the costs punished as much as people who believe that the taxpayer cost is zero. So this means that when you're not exposed uh, to the costs, then you punish as if money is falling from the sky. So I think the take home message here is that when people are prompted to think about another person's transgressions, we get so fixated on getting justice that we put our blinders up to other considerations that we might normally care about. Um, you know, when you're ordering lunch at a restaurant, you typically want to know the price first. If the price isn't listed on the menu, you're liable to order too much. But if the server were to refuse to tell you the price until after you've agreed to pay, well, that sounds absurd. But when it comes to criminal punishment judgments, that's exactly the situation we're in. We don't look at the price. We just buy everything on the menu as if money is falling from the sky. But it doesn't have to be this way. According to our studies, you know, people do care about balancing the costs of our various moral values. They just forget to think about that constraint until they're explicitly prompted. So do you think jurors should be routinely informed about how much different punishment options are, are costing taxpayers so they can weigh that in? Right. So I've, I've thought a lot about this, too. And um, in the legal system, jurors and judges are typically insulated from the cost of their punishment judgments. And, and that's by design. Uh, our legal tradition says that 
they shouldn't be burdened by those kinds of factors, uh, that the costs, the costs are really the domain of legislators and judges and jurors should make their punishment judgments basically in a vacuum. But, you know, I, I think that argument doesn't really fly. And, and one reason is that the U.S. already incarcerates more people than any other country and our crime rates are still relatively high. So hiding the cost of incarceration just increases our reliance on prison and it obscures the consideration of other potential alter alternatives. Um, another reason is that jurors and judges are also voters and taxpayers. And if they're ultimately footing the bill, then shouldn't they be entitled to have that information alongside the benefits? So, um, you know, if you look at the sentencing instructions provided to jurors and judges, they're heavily couched in terms of the benefits of incarceration, like deterrence or incapacitation and, and retribution. Um, but they're not, there's no cost language in those instructions. So it seems to me that if we want judges and jurors to make honest, authentic, and responsible sentencing decisions, then they really need to have equal access to information about the costs and the benefits. So this lack of transparency is actually built into this system, and it sounds like it may be contributing to the mass incarceration uh, challenge that we have in the United States. Yeah, I think that's a real possibility. Um, again, if the price of lunch isn't listed on the menu, then you're liable to overeat. And, and I do think something like this might be happening with incarceration in the U.S. Um, you know, when, when we're insulated from the costs of our collective decision, decisions, the sky's the limit. And, uh, you know, maybe that could explain why about one in 50 adults in the U.S. is under correctional supervision. Hmm. So what else can we do to manage the mass incarceration problem besides exposing judges and juries to the financial costs of their decisions? Yeah, so one growing area of justice research is violence risk assessment. Uh, so judges often have to decide who should be offered early parole, who should be first in line for treatment, you know, all based on their likelihood of reoffending or relapsing and so on. And when judges guess wrong, it results in over-incarceration and overuse of limited taxpayer resources. But if they get it right, they could potentially divert more non-dangerous people from prison and, and help them get the right treatment resources you know, to the people who actually need it. Uh, so to do this, uh, typically judges rely on risk assessment tools that help to assess the offender's criminal history, their social conditions, and, and their personality traits, um, like how impulsive they are. Um, but this approach, uh, but this approach doesn't have a great track record of predicting negative outcomes. So, my colleagues and I, including uh, Kent Keel at the University of New Mexico, um, we thought some of these factors, like impulsivity, uh, they're known to have neural underpinnings. So, why not see if these neural substrates of these kinds of personality traits might help us to improve our predictions? And I think you've referred to this as neuro prediction of future rearrest. Right. And um, it involves a part of the brain called the ACC. What What is that and how, how does that play into impulse control? Yeah, so the anterior cingulate cortex, the ACC, is a part of the brain believed to be responsible for helping you learn from your mistakes, uh, which is thought to be key for controlling your impulses. Uh, and it's also known that uh, impulsivity is a risk factor for repeated criminal behavior. So we wondered whether activity in the ACC could improve our predictions of reoffending. Uh, and so we, we tested this in a sample of uh, almost 100 criminal offenders who volunteered to be scanned before getting released from prison. 
And uh, what we found is that it could predict. So participants with reduced activity in the ACC were almost twice as likely to get rearrested as those with higher activity. So our interpretation is that uh, when these individuals make an impulsive mistake, the brains are not as likely to notice that error. So they're less likely to learn from the experience. So you can essentially use an MRI machine to get some insight into whether somebody has good self-control or they're an impulsive type of person who's likely to get in trouble again? Well, the answer is sort of yes and no, because as a basic science question, um, our lab is very interested in the full complement of risk factors that could put someone at an risk for criminal behavior. But we view the brain data as just one potential piece of that puzzle. Uh, so nobody's saying that we should rely on or rely exclusively on brain information in a legal setting when making predictions about an offender's future fate. Instead, we're asking a basic research question, which is whether we can enhance our predictions, um, whether traditional tools can be enhanced by including brain data in those models. And if they can, that raises an interesting question about whether and how we should actually use that information. So, yeah, how would we use information like that in a way that would not perpetuate inequalities in the criminal justice system? Right. So this, this is a big question. And um, to be clear, I don't think that the lesson here is that courts should start mandating brain scans to assess risk anytime soon. Um, but the fact is that Courts already mandate the use of behavioral risk assessment tools, and those tools' predictions are not particularly accurate or equitable. Uh, so one way of framing this debate is, would you rather use a mediocre prediction tool or a less mediocre one? Um, certainly there are legitimate concerns about any legal procedure that treats different social groups inequitably. The question here is, is there something special about the brain data that makes it more prejudicial than traditional risk assessment tools? And I just don't think we have the answer to that question yet. But what I can say is that the answer will most likely depend on how we want to use the tool. So uh, if a prosecutor or a politician wants to use these predictions to incarcerate more people or to increase their term lengths, that raises a host of thorny ethical and legal issues, you know, not to mention just how expensive prison is. Um, but there are other possible uses of these tools that, in my view, are less objectionable. So uh, like identifying who doesn't really need to be in prison and identifying who should get first priority for certain voluntary treatment programs or rehabilitation programs. So I say let's not put the cart before the horse. Uh, let's, let's pause and think about a responsible use of the science that benefits all of society, including those with criminal records, because... If they do better in society, then we do better too. So does that mean you envision a day when a scan of a, a suspect's brain might be in, admissible in court? You know, I, I think that, um, again, there's sort of two answers to this question. So today, there already are cases where scans have been brought forth in court, um, usually uh, in service of the defendant's case, right, to demonstrate that he lacked culpability or, or lacked some ability to control his behavior or something. Um, and, you know, we can debate about whether those kinds of arguments are really justified by the science. Um, now, whether we're going to 
go the next step and use brain scans to um, support a prosecutor's case against an offender, I think um, that's really uh, dubious for, for ethical and, and legal and practical reasons. So I don't envision that this will be a commonly used tool uh, in, in the foreseeable future uh, in a legal setting. Uh, I should say, I don't envision neuroprediction to be a commonly used tool in a legal setting. Um, but to the extent that uh, that people try to start using this technology uh, to make uh, these kinds of legal decisions, uh, we need to anticipate those uses so that we can encourage uh, those uses to be as responsible as possible. So now I'm going to take us in a different direction and ask a few personal questions. Uh, what led you to start research into the cost of incarceration? You know, it wasn't a specific moment of inspiration, but as far back as I can remember, I was, I was always deeply bothered by injustice. And I came to the conclusion that most injustice in this world isn't actually caused by individual bad apples. It arises from the nature of normal moral reasoning. So if we want to understand how to make the world a better place, I thought we should start by looking at ourselves in the mirror and asking, how do our own moral convictions sometimes trick us and blind us to more effective solutions to our social problems? What's the biggest misperception that people have about your research? So people often ask me, what's the future of neuroprediction technology? Are special agents going to come in and raid our homes and lock us up before we've done anything wrong? If you've ever seen the Minority Report with Tom Cruise, that's sort of what people are afraid of. Well, in reality, there are lots of legal barriers to those kinds of practices, but it's actually a legitimate concern because the laws aren't going to enforce themselves. So we scientists need to anticipate these sorts of concerns and participate in discussions about responsible use. And we voters and taxpayers need to educate ourselves about how political leaders intend to use our funds. And if we think that these leaders are misusing the science or misusing our funds, then we need to make our voices heard. Okay. Thank you for spending some time with us today, Al. This has been the Arts and Sciences Matters podcast, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgia State University. You can follow us or let us know what you think on Twitter at GSUArtsci, and you can find more episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Thank you for listening, and we hope you subscribe so you won't miss out on future episodes. <laughs>